Bibles to the last chapter of the Bible. And if you have trouble finding it, it's just before the book of Concordance and before the book of Maps. But that's Revelation chapter 22, the last chapter of the Bible. And our subject this morning is going to be the final invitation. Now, I realize that there's a little bit of a problem here because there are six messages that precede this that we've gone through and have brought us all the way up to this point. And so some of you that have not been with us through those six messages, there might be some things that really are a little bit confusing, but I hope that we'll be able to bring out enough here in the sermon this morning that everybody will kind of get a sense and an idea of what we're trying to do here in talking about this final invitation that's given. A few weeks ago, when I was preaching the second part of this message, I remarked about how unusual it is that God would give this invitation. And I said that I didn't understand why God would do this after reading these first 21 chapters of the book of Revelation and seeing all that's taken place there, of seeing how that the world has turned in its wickedness against God. And of course, we're talking about the end times in Revelation, how the world has turned against God. The world is so wicked. We see what happens and how men react to the gospel message. We see in those chapters how that God's name is blasphemed and I do not understand why we come down to the last part of the book of Revelation and God does just just doesn't say let it all be done with let everybody go to hell if they want to go to hell if that's what they're insistent about doing if they will not believe then just let them go and it seems like that's what God would do but when I say I don't understand I really do understand because I know that it's God's nature to love people. And I know that it's God's nature to be kind. I know that God loves lost sinners. And I know that God has provided salvation through Jesus Christ, his own son, and giving him a sacrifice for sin. Now the scriptures describe Jesus Christ as the rock of our salvation. We sing that song, On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. When Jesus spoke to Peter about the church, he said, Thou art Peter, and upon this rock I shall build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I believe that Jesus was using a play on words there. Peter's name means a rock. It means a a small rock, a stone. And so he says to Peter, you are a small stone, but upon this rock, meaning himself, meaning upon this massive rock, upon the cliff of rock, or you might say upon the El Capitan, the chief rock, the cornerstone, he says, I will build my church. And I believe it was Spurgeon who said that if you want to go to hell, You have to climb over a massive rock to get there. And that rock is Jesus Christ. Jesus stands in the way of sinners going to hell. And so you have to find a way around him to get there. And that's because the compassionate God, the Savior, the Holy Spirit, and the church that preaches the message of Jesus Christ, we are all standing together and we are inviting lost sinners to come to him. We all have the same desire that people would be saved. I want to call your attention to this text once again for those of you that have been with us. And if you haven't, we're, we're going to take up the 17th verse today. Uh, we finally made it here to the last invitation. Uh, despite the rejection of eons of time, the last chapter of the Bible sums up the message of the whole scripture. And that is that Jesus came to save sinners. 
Now, if you'll stand with me, please, as we read God's Word. Revelation chapter 22, verse number 12. Jesus speaks these words, And behold, I come quickly, and my reward is with me, to give every man according as his work shall be. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Blessed are they that do his commandments, that they may have right to the tree of life, and may enter in through the gates into the city. For without are dogs, and sorcerers, and whoremongers, and murderers, and idolaters, and whosoever loveth and maketh a lie. I, Jesus, have sent mine angel to testify unto you these things in the churches. I am the root, and the offspring of David, and the bright and morning star. And the spirit and the bride say, Come, and let him that heareth say, Come, and let him that is a thirst come, and whosoever will, let him take of the water of life freely. In that song that Janet just sang, there were a few words that it said, He calls us to come. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Jesus calling us to come, and also us calling for him to come. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. We pray, Lord, that you would bless this message today. Open our hearts to the truth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So I said most of you, or some of you at least, have not been here for the previous six messages that I've preached on this subject. Uh, Many of you have been, of course, and that's why I chose to preach this sermon today. But I wish that you could have seen the way that I outlined these messages. And, of course, you did see that because each week you're given an outline. You're given that little uh, sheet that you can take notes on. But I wish that you could have seen the original form of this. Because usually what I do when I'm working on a sermon is I I do a lot of reading. Then I'm taking notes as I do that. And I write it down on on a yellow pad. And then I begin to look at that text and I start to formulate the outline. And uh, this is the way I begin to incorporate the notes into an outline to make a message. And there's usually a lot of comments on those yellow sheets. Uh, Sometimes it's written so poorly that in my uh, personal calligraphy, when my writing gets cold, I can't even read what I've just written. But sometimes out of those very copious notes will come these outlines that I preach. These seven messages on this invitation were quite different because what I did was I printed a page of the King James Bible with these verses and I printed a page in wide margin and I began to go down the verses and I would write only one or two words beside each verse and that would be the word that I wanted to highlight for the message. And those words that I preached on previously were reward, reminder, readiness, rejected, regency, and then finally the word that we have for today, which is request. And those are about the only notes that I had, and the messages just seemed to fall in my lap as I began to look at this scripture. And I look back on that, and I know that I am not smart enough to make seven messages out of those words. I simply couldn't do that. And it reminded me that preaching is not, or that it should not be, a man-made effort. I have to feel the guidance of the Holy Spirit. And if I don't, then what I say is not worth saying. I was listening to a, a preacher one time who divided sermons into two different sorts. He said there are sermons that are simply just exposition of Scripture, And then there are sermons that the Holy Spirit takes hold of and you just preach. 
And I would say that I have to disagree with him because if the Holy Spirit hasn't taken care or taken charge of all the messages, then the ones without him are just talk. They're not really preaching. The Apostle Paul said this in 1 Corinthians, Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit which is of God, that we might know the things that are freely given to us of God, which things also we speak, not in words which man's wisdom teacheth, but which the Holy Ghost teacheth, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. So I don't want to get up and just talk to you. I want the Holy Spirit to guide the words, and I want these words to speak to your heart. Now, I've said all of that to say this, that when we come to this text, a text like this in Revelation 22:17, you'd better be ready to preach. Because here we have the summation of the entire theme of the Bible. We have been given scripture so that we might know Christ. And through that knowledge of Christ, souls can be saved. And so that's what we do. And every message that we preach, it's somehow going to come back to this most important theme is that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. You know, I've I've had people say to me, I don't want to know anything about theology. Keep or quit preaching theology. Just give us something practical that we can use. And that's not really an informed statement because theology is nothing other than the study of God. Everything that you read in Scripture is the study of God, and it's all about who God is and what God has done for a world of lost sinners. And so when you summarize the Bible, the theme is this. In Revelation twenty-two seventeen. it comes to this. And the Spirit and the bride say, Come, and let him that heareth say, Come, and let him that is a thirst come, and whosoever will, let him take of the water of life freely. And so those are the words of the gracious God. Those are the words of people that love him. They say, come. The Bible says, come. Now, I'm not going to go back through all the previous words and the messages. I'm just going to start here. And this is why your outline starts with a sixth this morning. And that's the twofold request. The twofold request that we find in this scripture. Now, verses 12 through 17 of Revelation 22 are somewhat unusual because there are a number of voices that speak. Sometimes there's an angel. Sometimes there's John that speaks. Sometimes it's Christ. Sometimes it's the Holy Spirit. Sometimes it's the church. And it can be a little bit difficult at times to determine which person is saying which. But there's no mistaking this, that all the voices in these last verses blend together with one central message. And that word is come. There's a desire for someone to come. And in the case of verse 17, there are actually three times that the text says come. And there is a request for two different parties to come. And so I've divided verse number 17 into two parts. Who is invited to come? Now I want you to notice first of all that what we have here is a plea for the Savior to come. That's the intention of the first two times that come is used. And it's a response to what we read in verse number 12, in which Jesus says, Behold, I come quickly. And so the Holy Spirit speaks and he says, Come. The bride of Christ, which is his church, it says, Come. And it says, Come from all of these individuals that have gone into heaven before us, that vast congregation that's in heaven, they also say for Christ to come. 
And that's what every Christian looks forward to. We're waiting for the time when Jesus will come to this earth again. When he ascended into heaven, Jesus left that promise that he would return. And during this interval of his absence, he promised that he would send the Holy Spirit who is the comforter, that the Holy Spirit would come as the paraclete, That means the one who's called alongside to help us. And so the Spirit came into the world to reprove, to convict, to convince of sin. He came here as the one who guides us into all truth. He came as the one who regenerates this wicked heart of ours. And he came to inspire messages of the gospel of Christ so that people can believe. And he uses the word of God to affect the heart of lost sinners and to bring them to Christ. Now, why is that work of the Holy Spirit necessary? Well, I think we understand it's because of the depravity of the human heart. See, when God created man, he gave him the goodness of the earth. He gave him all things for life and joy and peace and happiness. God blessed man. In fact, his personal presence was in the garden with Adam. And Adam had God with him, but Adam, who is our representative, rejected that blessing, and he fell from that happy and holy state. But God was right there. God loved Adam, and God redeemed Adam. He caused him to rise from those ashes of a torch relationship, and he saved Adam. He brought him back into fellowship again. Well, human history goes on, and over time, men became wickeder than you can imagine. It was so bad that God looked down on the earth and in Genesis chapter 6 it says, And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And it repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth and grieved him at his heart. This is at the time of Noah. There was only one man and one family among all the inhabitants of the earth that worshipped God. There was only one family that was saved. Only one family saved in the flood and all the rest were destroyed. And God said to Noah, come. He said, bring your family into the ark. And God saved that family and he preserved the human race from destruction. And you know how the story continues. I could rehearse it to you as Stephen did uh, in front of the Sanhedrin, when he talked about stories of Israel and their rejection of God. And you would hear about how the prophets came and they were killed. They brought God's invitation to return to him. So you would hear the stories about Isaiah and Jeremiah and Hosea and Daniel and Micah and Zechariah. And they were all giving that same message of the Holy Spirit to God's people. They said to them, come and God will forgive you of your sins. Come and return to me. Come back to God and you can be his people. And then you would hear more about how the promised Messiah did come. And although he did mighty works of God, they scorned him and they rejected him. So there were few that would believe. And when all was said and done, they crucified the Lord of glory. And so now you see in our text that the Holy Spirit says to Jesus, come. Why does he say for him to come? Well, there are two reasons, I think. The first is a plea for the Savior to come to end the strife. To end the strife. Now, Revelation is just a remarkable story because here we see how the world has returned to a state it was in before the flood. In Revelation, the world has become terribly wicked again. There's an antichrist who arises and he's gladly followed by the people. God is rejected by the people. 
And God doesn't destroy the world by a flood again. He promised that he wouldn't do that. But what he does do is he brings this cloudburst of terrible judgments upon the earth. In Revelation chapter 9, it says, And the rest of the men which were not killed by these plagues, or all these judgments that God brought, it says, They repented not of the works of their hands, that they should not worship devils and idols of gold, and silver and brass and stone and of wood, which neither can hear, uh, see, nor hear, nor walk. Neither repented they of their murders, nor of their sorceries, nor of their fornication, nor of their thefts. And so you see God bringing judgment upon the world and these people will still not repent even though God brings such terrible plagues upon them. In Revelation 16 it says, And men were scorched with great heat and blasphemed the name of God which hath power over these plagues. And they repented not to give him glory. And the fifth angel poured out his vial upon the seed of the beast and the kingdom was full of darkness. And they gnawed their tongues for pain and blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores and repented not of their deeds. That's what you see in the human condition. Men will not repent of their sins. And so what does the Holy Spirit ask for? What does the church ask for? It says, come, Lord Jesus, come and put an end to all this strife. Come back and establish your kingdom upon the earth. They say the same thing that the Lord Jesus Christ told us to pray for. He said, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so first we see that there is a plea for this horrible rejection of Christ to end. And the plea is that Christ will come to conquer, that his kingdom will come and end all the strife. And that kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom of righteousness Isaiah says, They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as waters cover the sea. And so the Spirit and the bride, again, the bride is the church, they ask for the kingdom to come. And so after the wickedness of man has become so great, after men have fought against Christ, after Satan has done his worst, there's the plea for both of them to be subdued and for all strife to end. So there's a plea for heaven and earth to be harmonized in the new heaven and the new earth to come in which God's kingdom will stand forever. And then there's also a plea for the Savior to come to be exalted over all. And that plea is the fulfillment of Philippians chapter 2 in which all of creation will be subdued at the feet of Jesus. This is a plea that his name will be exalted and that at his name every knee will bow. At the sound of his name every knee falls prostrate at his feet. And that is the plea for the recognition of Jesus Christ as the Lord of all. Now as I've, as I've stated many times, we all exist. Heaven exists and earth exists for the glory of God. There is, no other, there is no other reason for the creation. You try to figure that out and you say, well, why am I here? Why, why is everything made that's made? Why, why is this? And there is no answer to those questions but one, everything exists for the glory of God. Now, how sad it is that people can go to church for their entire lives And they can listen to preachers Sunday after Sunday. They can constantly work in the church. They can live good lives and be sincere about it. And how sad that preachers never taught them that all of these things that we do are for the glory of God. That it was never about us. 
But it's always been about him. And so when the spirit and the bride say come, this is an invitation for that truth to be fully recognized by both the saved and the lost alike. Now this is really a sad thing, but there are many Christians who haven't yet found this out. You see, there are some Christians who think that the lordship of Christ is a myth. They still say things like, well, we do need Christ as our Savior. Most definitely, we need to trust him as Savior. But it's really not necessary for Christ to rule our lives. It's really not necessary for him to be our Lord. And even some of them go so far as to say that you can be a Christian and not actually be a disciple of Christ. And they're confused about that. But they'll find out the real meaning when Christ responds to this invitation because no one will deny the lordship of Christ then. So that's the first part of this twofold invitation. It's a plea for the Savior to come to end all strife and then for him to be exalted above heaven and earth. Now the second part of it though is what I previously said is the real mystery of the whole thing and that is the plea for sinners to come. And we're not at all puzzled why Christians would want Christ to come back. I don't think there's any of us here that wouldn't want to be delivered from this old world that we live in, all the problems that we have, all the health problems, all the crime that we endure, all the ridicule that Christians endure. Of course, of course we want Christ to come back. But the second part of this is the one that's really a little bit hard for us to understand. Because after all that we've seen and heard, and after all of this history that we read about in the Bible, and especially after what we read in Revelation, we don't understand why that God has not just utterly forsaken the world. And he couldn't care less if there's another sinner that comes. And so I could answer that question, why an invitation? By taking you to the eternal plan of God, the one that was formed before the foundation of the world, and that would supply a sufficient answer. There are still some of God's people to be saved, and the world is not going to end until every last one of them come to Christ. The scripture says that God is long-suffering, not willing that any should perish. And so that means that he's not going to end the world until all that he wants to come have come. And that's clear from the context of Second Peter chapter 3 in which that statement is made. The context is the second coming of Christ and the destruction of the world as we know it. And Peter is saying there that it's not going to happen until all of God's people have believed and have been saved. Now I could talk to you about that and, and I could mention that, but I'm not going to talk about that today. That, that makes the verses seem too much like a fortuitous opportunity to teach that doctrine. So you won't hear me mention that. But rather what I want to do is dwell on the theme that's expressed by the unity of all those that are associated with God. So what is that theme? Well, first is the desire that we all have in common. What is the desire that all Christians have in common? Well, I believe that the first two times that the invitation is given that it's a reference for the desire for Christ to come. The spirit and the bride say come. But I think that it's no less true that there is a unity of desire of the spirit and the church for lost sinners to come. You see, God sent his son, or sent the spirit rather, into the world to convict the world of sin, to uh, bring that conviction on us. And if that wasn't done, there's never a person that could be saved. 
If it weren't for the Holy Spirit working beneath the consciousness of man to make its heart fertile soil for the gospel, then there's no one that would ever be saved. And that work of the Holy Spirit is an independent work. That's not the activity of man. We call it a monergistic work in which the Holy Spirit works like the wind. That's explained in John 3 verse 8. It's an imperceptible thing, just like the wind. We don't know where it comes, where it goes. It's imperceptible until the Holy Spirit produces this work of repentance and faith. Now that's the Holy Spirit's work and that's what he's been sent from the Father to do. And so you understand why the Holy Spirit says come. This is why he invites sinners to come because that's the work that he does. And if he didn't cause people to come to him, then there's no one who would come. But there's another work of the Spirit that takes place in every Christian and that's the desire for others to come. We are not content to come alone. You see, if you understand what God has saved you from and you can see where you are headed without Christ, you would never want another living soul to stay on the same path that you were on and turn their backs on the living God. Never would you want a relative to die without Christ. Never would you want your mom or your dad or your brother or your sister to suffer the judgment of God. And even though you might not like some of your co-workers... Or some of your neighbors that yell at night and cause all kinds of problems in the neighborhood. And maybe there are people that you don't like. But one thing that you would never wish on any of them is they would suffer the eternal wrath of God. You don't want that to happen to anybody. And so every Christian has this desire put into their hearts that they want people to be saved. Now sometimes, and more often than not, we suppress that desire. And we close our mouths and we never say anything. I told the story once or twice about two people that worked side by side for several years and neither one of them knew that the other was a Christian. Neither one had spoken to the other about Christ. And the person who originally told that story said, I don't think that either one of them was actually a Christian. And that's because in his view, what you could not do is work with somebody and know somebody and be a Christian for all of that time and never talk to them about Christ and the free gift of salvation. But this is what most of us do. We suppress that desire to witness. But I want to tell you that if you will yield to that desire, that you'll find it to be thrilling. When you see the results of it, that God has used you to bring someone to Christ... It's like having a renewed excitement in life. You know, I get that feeling sometimes after preaching and someone comes into my office and they say, I want to know more about this. Can you tell me more about this? I need to hear. And then that person receives Christ. And we have a church for that purpose. We, we come here for instruction so that we might know more about Christ. And if you listen and you learn about what's preached, how are you ever going to go away with a different attitude about sinners than Christ had? How are you going to act differently or think differently than the Holy Spirit when he's the one that leads the Christian into all truth? He's the teacher. And so if he guides you into all truth, how can you miss the instruction that he's given concerning the Great Commission? That all of us should be witnesses for Christ wherever we are. And if you miss that, then don't think that you're some kind of great Bible student and you've got everything figured out. 
See, whether we have 47 opportunities a week in the church for evangelism or we have none, that makes no difference because this is an individual responsibility. All of us need to do this. And we need to have that fire kindled in us in order that we're living testimonies for Christ. You know, I struggle sometimes with new converts because of the energy and the excitement that they have about their faith. And I struggle with that because what we want to do is get that energy channeled in the right direction before that person becomes so much like many church members that are really good for nothing but warming pews. And that's mostly what we do, isn't it? We just warm the pews. Now, do you know what excites the church? We get excited when we are in the unity of the Spirit and somebody gets saved. When we have the opportunity to baptize someone, when they get saved and we have the opportunity to baptize them, you know what that does? That turns grumpy Christians into happy Christians. A salvation and a baptism can change the mood of the entire church. You know, when people get saved, they'll often tell me that they're a little bit scared to come and stand in front of the church, and that's what we do before we introduce into membership. We ask the person to come and present themselves, saying that they have believed and that they want to be baptized. And so someone will tell me that they're hesitant about that, and they just don't like to stand up in front of the crowd. But I, I try to allay those fears a little bit by saying that when you stand up here, every person in this building is your friend. Every person here is as happy for you as they can possibly be. Every person is excited that you have received Christ as Savior. So we can have a grumpy bunch of people on a Sunday morning, but when I bring somebody up here and I say, this person has believed, and now can I have permission to baptize them? There's not a frown in the place. And if you see one then you know that person is not a Christian because he, he doesn't belong to Christ. You can't see people saved and not be happy about it. Deep down in your heart, you're thrilled because others have come to know Christ. Whenever I get calls from people around the country, and this happens sometimes, somebody will call me and they'll say, I heard your messages on your website, and I just want you to know that I'm a Christian. And I say, I am so happy to hear that all across this country there are other people that believe the same things that we believe about salvation in Jesus Christ. I am so happy to hear that there are Christians around the country. When Catherine gets up and she sings one of those verses in Korean, I always get a smile on my face because I know that no matter what race you are, no matter what color you are, no matter what nationality you are, that if you believe in Jesus, you have the same Savior that I have. And I'm just thrilled to know that people around the world know who Jesus is. So this is a wonderful thing. God, th- this is the feeling, the best feeling that you can have outside of your own salvation. It'll make you happy in church. It'll make you happy at work. It'll make you happy at home. Because what it does, it pushes away all of the cares of life because you know that you have fulfilled God's purpose for your life. You see, God's purpose is that Christ would be exalted and glorified, and the only way that the world will ever do it is when their hearts are turned to him in salvation. Now let me finish 
This is a great invitation, but we dare not miss this lapse observation because this is what makes it all come together and really puts the meaning into the invitation. And this is the desire of Christ. The last come, I think, is the come of Christ. And this is the invitation that he personally gives to sinners. Well, there are a lot of times that Jesus says, come. Turns out that it's one of the favorite words that he used in Scripture. And it has a salvation meaning. It's not come like, you know, let's get together and let's go here together. Just come with me. It's not what the word means. When Jesus uses the word come, it's almost always associated with belief. Whether it was when he talked to the disciples and he said, come follow me. Or when he said to that short little guy that climbed up in the sycamore tree. And he said, come down because I'm going to your house today. Or when he said, go into the highways and hedges and compel them to come. Or when he said, come unto me all ye that labor and are heavy laden. Each of those is a call to believe in him. Those are calls to trust him. So he says, believe me, trust me. And he says here, whosoever will, let him take of the water of life freely. You know, there's people that like to camp on that whosoever will there. And they'll say, well, that means that God has never chosen anybody to salvation. He says, this is a whosoever will gospel. Our gospel is a whosoever will gospel. You know, we don't need to fear such a claim as that. Because the scripture is very simple about this. That whosoever wills are the ones that God has worked in their hearts to make them willing. They're the only ones that ever do come. The whosoever won'ts don't come. They never do. It's the whosoever wills that God has spoken to when God has worked in them. This is what Paul says in Philippians 2.13. For it is God that worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. But I promised I wasn't going to talk about those things this morning, so I won't. Uh, This is a very sincere invitation. The invitation is for you to hear this message and anyone who hears the message and says, this is for me and I will believe then you can freely come. You're invited to come. And if you say, I will not come, then whose fault is that? Is that God's fault? Is it God's fault that you don't come? God says come. He invites you to come. And some, you know, you're not going to be able to say, well, no, I wasn't chosen, so I can't come. You're never going to find a person like that. Hell is not populated with people who wanted to come to Christ, but they couldn't. No, the scripture says you can come. You're invited to come. So we have this gracious invitation and it's the desire of Christ himself. Christ does not reluctantly save anybody. He didn't reluctantly go to the cross. He did it gladly. Isaiah said that he shall see the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. And then the word says that for the joy that was set before him, he went to the cross. It's his desire to save. Jesus said, I came to seek and to save that which is lost. So we don't come to the end of the Bible and after all that's taken place, after all that's happened in the past, after all that's happening in the present, after all that will happen in the future, that Christ decides to withdraw this invitation No, he's still the compassionate Savior. He's still the Savior that weeps over the rejection of men. And he's still the Savior that's the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. 
And so we find him here in the very last chapter of the Bible doing exactly what we expect him to do, still showing love and compassion for those that have so wrongfully treated him, for those who have turned their backs on them, for those who will live their lives every day and say, I don't care about Christ, I want none of him, I'll live my own life, I'll do what I want to do. And the very same Savior has experienced all of that, even to the place that he was crucified on the cross, he still says, I want you to come. I still want to save you. And so here we have a twofold invitation. Come, Lord Jesus, come and make all things new. Come and bring your kingdom with you. Come and be exalted to the highest throne in heaven. And then come, sinner. Come to Christ for salvation. The Spirit and the Bride and the congregation of heaven and the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory and the King of kings says, Come. Come and get what he freely offers. As the hymn says, Could my tears forever flow? Could my zeal no languor know? These for sin could not atone. Thou must save, and thou alone. In my hand no price I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. And so what is our plea? What is the plea for every Christian in this room? Come, Lord Jesus. Come. Come back. Come and deliver us. But also, come, sinner. Come and believe in Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for this invitation that we find in the Bible, that we come all the way down to the end of Scripture, and the message that you have wanted us to receive for all of this time is still there. It will always be there until this world ends, that you invite sinners to come to you. Lord, I just pray that you would open the heart of someone today. I pray that all Christians would be doing what you said to do, to pray for the kingdom of God to come. And then, Lord, that we would be witnesses for you, that we would tell sinners to come and go with us. Come with us. Come when Christ comes to meet him. And, Lord, we just pray that you'd speak to our hearts and make us the kind of people that want to give that message to everybody we know. Speak to our hearts today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.